Mountain believes every brand should be on TV, regardless of budget or size. That's why their self-serve performance TV platform takes the difficulty and expense out of connected TV advertising. With Performance TV, you get access to tens of thousands of audience segments, so you can always find your target customer. Mountain serves your ads exclusively on premium streaming networks to elevate your brand profile and auto-optimizes your campaigns thousands of times a day to ensure you're always at peak performance. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Alex Beller, the president of PostScript. PostScript is one of the companies that's really redefining customer engagement in the modern era. We're going to talk about their SMS platform, what they're doing to differentiate their products from a very competitive marketplace, and uh, I'm excited to have you here. So a hearty welcome to Alex Beller, president of PostScript. Thank you, Matt. It is great to be here. Great to have you. So Alex, as always, our crack great minds research team has left no stone unturned. And in their work uh, and research about you, we uncovered a little nugget that I thought might be a great place to start. And that is your early days and experience performing with the Groundlings, a legendary improv club troupe. And I'd love to start there and talk about the Groundlings. Yeah. That's a, that's a fun experience to start with. So growing up, I always loved performing. Uh, I was passionate about theater. I was passionate about improv, even, you know, in the, in the preteen days. And uh, my favorite role that I was just reminiscing with a friend over was I played Salieri in the play Amadeus. Um, Salieri is the bad guy against Mozart. And uh, at the very end, he, he kills himself because he can't take the shame of his actions anymore and his embarrassment and, as like a 16 year old, that was very fun to do. Um, that was an intense role. And so in my twenties, uh, I was working in technology in Los Angeles and I got back into improv and it happened because I was at a concert and I ran into my high school drama teacher at a concert in a different state. And he just said, Alex, are you doing anything creative? And I was like, no, well, Mr. Burns, I'm actually, you know, at this moment, I'm, I'm not, I'm very focused on like working in tech and in e-commerce. And he's like, you, you got to get back on stage. So that relit the spark. And I started doing improv all around LA. And for about uh, four or five years of my life, I was performing at a handful of different theaters, uh, working in tech. But my nights and weekends were spent on improv and sketch comedy, including at the Groundlings. And so for, for four or five years, that was where I spent the majority of my time. And as after that run is when we started PostScript. Um, and I kind of went from working in tech and doing improv to wholeheartedly focused on PostScript. But I would think the foundation, if you will, of improv is inadvertently, I can't say we've been clever enough to say by design, but inadvertently probably a great training ground for what you're doing now. It It's actually an incredible one. Um, it teaches me so much. I, I lead a bunch of different teams here, but you know, one of them is our, is our sales and marketing, our like revenue organization. And I tend to be very comfortable in those settings, or we just had our set of user conferences and I'm very comfortable on stage and stuff like that. But the biggest lesson I took from it that is so useful in startups 
is getting comfortable with failure. Because when you're doing improv, you are mostly not funny. And especially in the early years, you go on stage, everyone sits there watching you saying, be funny, make me laugh. And mostly you aren't. And you're constantly embarrassing yourself and you're constantly failing. And you need to build the muscle to walk off stage after having a very bad show and not let it ruin your week or month. You have to build the muscle of shrugging it off and just getting right back to work. And that muscle is also, I mean, that's the epitome of startups. It's just picking yourself up and dusting yourself off after you have a, a fail or a setback. Yeah, I love improv and we did for many, many years and they've had some real challenges. Both their theaters, sadly, in New York are closed now. I think LA uh, also might be closed. Talking about the Upright Citizens Brigade, UCB, another sort of gold standard of improv. And during advertising week, we did a bunch of stuff with them. Uh, we had Jordan Klepper for a show who's doing, you know, killing, killing it now on The Daily Show and a lot of other great improv performances. But we did something with them one year, The Art of the Pitch. And there was one year, it was a couple years ago, and it was some crazy number of media accounts were all in review at the same time. And it was like Pitchapalooza. People came up with all these, you know, half-baked words to describe just the amount of money that was in play. And we did something during advertising week where we had media agencies and they went and worked with UCB improvisers to learn how to pitch better. And they loved it. And I think that skill, what you're talking about, developing that muscle uh, to deal with failure, that's very unique to improv. It, it, it's very unique. I think it's very unique to improv and probably also to stand-up comedy, right? They have to learn to walk off stage after bombing and not let that stop their career. But uh, it, it's an incredibly important muscle and one I'm grateful for on a regular basis. Yeah, uh, great, great start. And you also love music. I know you worked in the music licensing business, and I'm going to yeah. give you some call letters here, KXSC. Can we talk about your tenure on the air as a DJ? Sure. This was also, uh, this is right after, right after school. Um, I, I didn't finish uh, undergrad. I'm a, I'm a proud dropout. And uh, during that time, I started getting into local radio. And also, I was trying to work in the music business in general. And so I was working in licensing and working on air. And uh, I had a once a week show mostly focused on playing like funk and soul and things like that. A lot of times we would do uh, vinyl only shows where we would bring in records and play analog all night. And uh, that was a lot of fun. That was just a, a guilty pleasure activity. It was a tiny little radio station in LA. And at the same time, I was starting to trying to work my way up the music biz and um, very low starting as like a licensing assistant at a small little independent trailer music company called Methodic Doubt. Um, they made, they made music for action movie trailers. It was a very specific niche, right? And if you think about it, a lot of those sound pretty similar. It's like, dun, 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 dun. And they made a specialty music that, that kind, and they had a big reputation and it was a healthy business. But what I saw was that at the time, the internet was really destroying the music industry. Like, now things have normalized. The big record labels are actually doing pretty well. They've figured out licensing and, and streaming revenues. Uh, and Spotify has become a, a major player and source of income. But at the time, that wasn't the case. At the time, like YouTube wasn't monetizing and Spotify was still very early or it hadn't even launched in the US yet. And uh, the music business was upside down. And it was happening because of the internet. And that 
is actually what got me into tech and startups was I was trying to work in music and I saw the internet just completely destroying and turning upside down the music business. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. There's this place of all this innovation and bets and risk going on. And so uh, it was around that time when I uh, took a leave of absence from school, went to work for a startup in Venice Beach and never looked back. And was that Stack Commerce? That was Stack Commerce. And can we talk about that? You had about almost a six year run there. I'm guessing Postscript came out of that experience, but take us back to the beginning at Stack Commerce. Yeah. So Stack Commerce is a really cool story. It's 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 a little bit of a non-traditional one in a good way where uh, they raised very little money, maybe like a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million bucks back in 2011. They got profitable. They stayed profitable for 10 years and they sold it last year and had a really great outcome. So it's not one of these like the route Postscript's on and many tech startups are on these days of raising huge amounts of money. It was more stay smaller, stay lean. And uh, I joined Stack Commerce uh, as probably like a first, fifth or sixth team member. It was very early. I showed up as an intern and I just started trying to do all the things they put in front of me. And I was very stimulated and we were right on Venice Boardwalk, uh, sitting in an office at a table next to each other and I was 22 and the CEO was sitting next to me and telling me what to do. It was very exciting and our revenue was growing. And uh, that became a defining experience for me where I did spend six years there. Uh, I jumped through a variety of different roles. We grew the team, we grew the business. I was able to step up and take on um, really overseeing like new business revenue there on the publisher side of their business. And uh, it was an incredible learning experience for me of wins and failures and also exposure into e-commerce. And so to your point, Towards the end of my tenure there, I became friends with uh, one of our product managers named Adam Turner. And Adam and I would kick ideas back and forth. We were interested in startups. He'd started a gaming company that had failed. And he, now he's working at Stack Commerce. And we were talking about like, what is the mobile first retention channel? Emails worked forever on desktop, but the Stack Commerce business, we were seeing email performance decline year over year. And we were seeing mobile shopping traffic keep going up and up and up. And so we were like, there has to be a better channel for mobile. And a friend of Adam's had a business on Shopify, an e-commerce business, and complained to him one day that he didn't have a way to text messages customers. And that was like the spark of the idea. And Adam and his brother, Colin, started uh, writing code on this application and started talking to me about ways to support it from the business side and talking to customers. And shortly thereafter, we launched Postscript. And that's been our focus ever since. And so your background, not engineering. No. More just, just sounds like just a pure sort of entrepreneurial seizing opportunity story. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I think my, my experience before Postscript was probably, I would call it partnerships. But um, yeah, I came on to be their business partner and handle sales and marketing and customers and all that stuff. So I remember many years ago, I was listening to Bob Greenberg speak. Bob was in digital before anybody else in RGA as, a, as an agency, still very powerful. But there was a moment when, you know, nobody could shine their shoes. RGA was way, way ahead of everybody else. And Bob Greenberg as a thinker was way, way ahead of everybody else. And it was back in the early days of mobile phones when most of us had those little Nokia phones that, you know, didn't do very much. And, and Bob talked about a computer in your pocket, that that's what the phone was going to be. 
And I remember walking out of that room. It was not an advertising week. It was another event. I remember walking out and saying, well, that's not very, it's like, uh, you know, anybody could have said that, you know, like that's not all that insightful. And I love and respect Bob tremendously. And looking back on that, boy, he was right. And when you look at the evolution of that piece of equipment and what we do with it now, that's going to continue to rule the roost. You know, I'm not a believer in, you know, the, the glasses that do, you know, I, I just, I think, you know, I, I think the AR thing is going to, you know, can continue to have headwinds because I think people don't want to walk around their living room, you know, with a helmet on. Um, but when you look at what the mobile does, oh boy, they were right. And you're right in the middle of that ecosystem. It, it's true. It's interesting because what we're really innovating on and working with is helping brands use that channel to speak directly to consumers, right? And not through like a way where they're showing them an ad, but through like a, a two-way engagement channel where real conversations can happen. What's so interesting is at the same time, the technology is quite old, not, not postscript, but like SMS has existed since the nineties, right? Like those pipes have been set up for a very long time. And so it's interesting because 20 years into text messaging, brands are finally starting to adopt it. Even though we as consumers have been using it as the primary way to speak to one another for the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and so it, it's very fully adopted for peer to peer. It's still really early for business to consumer. Okay. So I want to get into that and what you're doing at Postscript with brands in a bit, but it's not often we get to talk to someone who's still pretty young founder, creator of a business. Let's go through a little bit of that journey. There must have been some real challenging moments. Uh, talk about that time from when you decided to launch the business to the actual launch, raising initial seed capital. Take us inside you know, the founder story from the founder's perspective. Postscript, I shared where it was inspired from, right? A mix of us thinking about the market and and a friend of ours who who just had this specific problem and he, and he shared that with Adam. And it was Adam's original inspiration for this idea. And, you know, funny enough, Matt, when we started it, we thought this was going to be a small passive side business. We thought the market for this is really small, but it's a specific problem. We'll build the web application and maybe one day we'll each make a few thousand dollars a month from this on the side. Like in addition to our jobs, it'll be a nice little passive business. And we wanted to try to build a few of these small passive software businesses. And so we launched it after maybe three months of work on the Shopify ecosystem as a Shopify integration. Uh, because what we wanted to do is we wanted to solve a specific problem that we could charge money for right from the start and sell to businesses first to consumers. And so we focused on Shopify because that was the very specific problem set. And we launched and nothing happened. We didn't have any installations. And the next day, someone set up a Postscript account. And then a couple of days after that, a few more did. And a couple of days after that, a few more did. And by the end of the first month, we had, I don't know, maybe like $800 in like monthly recurring revenue. And that was something. That was very, very exciting. That was really something. And so actually one memory I have is at the time I was in New York for my other job that, that I still held at Stack Commerce. And I saw that there was a Shopify conference going on in New York. 
and it was sold out. Tickets were like $800 anyway. So we didn't have any money. We didn't have any funding or anything, uh, but it was sold out. And so I decided I was going to try to sneak in because I just naively thought to myself, like, if I get there, I'll meet some customers. We'll make some money. Something good will happen. So I go to this event and there's security guards out front with, with clipboards, with, with names. And I, I'm like, oh shit, you know, sorry. I don't know if I can curse on this. Great. So I go, oh shit, how am I going to get into this thing? I'm not from New York. I just, I just moved to New York a month ago, but not from New York. So I think, okay, I'll try to go around back and get in through the alley into the kitchens or something like that. So I try that, but I can't find the right door or it's locked. So I go back around out front and I'm standing there thinking like, how am I going to get into this conference? And I see someone leaving with the badge and they're, they're getting into a taxi and I run up to him and his name was Lee Hadstock. Lee, he's a great guy. I didn't know him, but I introduced myself and I explained who I was and I asked him if he was leaving and he said he was going to the airport. So I asked him for his badge. I explained what I needed it for. He gave me his badge, went into the conference and ended up meeting a handful of customers, meeting the Shopify team. They immediately caught me and I was very honest about what had happened and they got a big kick out of it. They didn't mind, but I took a few things from that. One, that's how you sneak into conferences. <laughs> but but uh, two, it was a really exciting moment and uh, it embodied really the three of us, me and my partners, we tell each other that story sometimes because like you often just have to keep going and you often have to be a little relentless with, with little things that are in front of you. So to go back though, we were, we were just starting off. We had maybe 800, a thousand bucks in monthly revenue. And, uh, at the time I mentioned, I'd, I'd, uh, dropped out of school. All these stories are flowing back to me. I dropped out of school and I was taking one course to see if I would finish my degree. So I was back on campus a little bit. And I saw that there was a pitch competition on USC's campus and the prize was $10,000. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm a working professional. I'm not a 21 year old. I should be able to do pretty well in this thing. We've got a real business. So I put, I signed us up for this pitch competition and we get listed as an alternate. We don't even get in. They let in 20 companies that are all ideas. We had real revenue. We, uh, it, it was very frustrating. They call me the day of, they say, Hey, we have an open slot for you if you want to come in. So I go to this pitch competition, had very little prepared and I was going up against, you know, undergrad students with, with their ideas. And we ended up winning this pitch competition. I was super excited. I was pitching the idea. I was saying, Oh, we have $800 in monthly revenue. We're going to grow. Here's the story. So we won the $10,000. Now we had $10,000 in our pocket and we decided to apply to Y Combinator. And this was a big moment for us. Uh, we didn't expect to get in, but we weren't very connected in the tech world. We were, we'd worked in tech, we'd worked in startups in LA and Phoenix, but we weren't connected to investors. We weren't from Silicon Valley. Um, and so we ended up applying, we rehearsed our pitch a whole bunch and we got accepted to YC. And so at that point we put in notice at all our jobs, we decided we were gonna go full-time over those last few months, revenue had grown from 800 to 1,000 to 3,000 to $10,000 a month. And we had a ticket to Y Combinator starting in January and we had $10,000 to pay for our, to rent a house for our three months in living in the Bay. And so really from there is when we were just off to the races. The idea never changed much. We found pretty early product market fit where we were focused on helping brands on Shopify 
launch SMS programs and communicate directly with their customers. And our revenue grew and, and we went on after Y Combinator to raise a few rounds of funding, but that was really the initial start. Talk about the dynamic with you and your fellow founders living in that house, three, four grand a month, you know, young guys trying to make a go of it. That's got to be an incredibly exciting period of time. It was very special. It was it was a bucket list thing. And all of us were also a little bit further along. You know, we were in our late 20s. One of us was in our early 30s. Uh, so that's Colin, actually, who's our COO and my partner. Colin and his wife had adopted their first child about a week before Y Combinator started. And the reason is because, you know, they were on a list and th they didn't have tons of warning. It was like all of a sudden, like, hey, you know, you, you've been selected and, and you, this child's here. So it was their first kid. And we're about to move to the Bay to live in a house together to work 24 seven on, on this company. And so it was a really special but crazy time. My other my other business partner, Adam, his longtime girlfriend, Megan, and their dog lived with us. And it was really special where we'd gone from kind of more established siloed lives to kind of regressing to a little bit of a college environment where we were in a house, we'd wake up together in the middle of Oakland, we would work all day, we'd go to dinner together, we'd come back, we'd work till around 11 p.m. midnight, we'd go to sleep and do it again. And we did that about six days a week. And on Saturdays, we would take breaks and we'd spend our time driving down and, and visiting our, our partners and our peers at YC. And it was, especially because during that time, PostScript was gaining traction and our revenue was growing each month. It was very exciting. It was special. It was like a bucket list experience. Fantastic story. Talk about Y Combinator a little bit. It uh, plays such a seminal role in... Uh, so many companies that have gone on to accomplish great things, but take us under the Y Combinator hood and walk us through that experience a little bit. Yeah. So YC is a unique, unique institution. And we applied, and interestingly, I'd been rejected from YC before. Adam and Colin had been rejected from YC before, separately. And so we had pretty low expectations and we didn't think we'd be able to get in. But we decided to go for it. We thought we had something and uh, we got in and, and how YC works is it's called an accelerator. And I really think that's the right phrase for it. It's a three month program. And we were there once a week, the rest of the time we were just working. And that once a week, we would do the famous group dinner where everyone in our batch would come for dinner. There was over 150 companies. So a couple hundred entrepreneurs there and a speaker would come and be interviewed. And the speakers would be, you know, the founders, like one of the founders of Airbnb came, right? Great XYC and, and tech founders would be there and they would just tell their story. And then you would have mentorship time with both your peers and also some of the group partners. And they would, you know, push you on your metrics and they would help you focus and they would help you prioritize. And you also got to see them coach other founders. So you heard again and again, the sort of things that they were saying and focused on and leaning into. And that really helped us because we were different than many companies and that we already had a lot of traction then. We like knew what we were doing. We just had to grow where a lot of companies come in sooner, earlier than that. But for us, we still needed that infrastructure. We did not know how to go about fundraising. We'd never done that before. We did not have connections to investors. We did not understand how to package up the story of PostScript and make it a cogent thing that would resonate with investors. 
And so all of that really, really came together where the benefits we saw was all the fundraising stuff, learning, connections, everything there, but also the energy you get and the motivation you get from showing up each week and sitting in a circle with the same group of founders and them each reporting what they did that week, it, it's it's inspiring in a good way. You don't want to show up and be the one who did the least. You don't want to show up and be the one whose metrics didn't move. And so it creates a like friendly, competitive environment along with focused direction from the partners that I think probably jumped us forward like a year. And going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of the you know, being on stage and performing with the groundlings, I would think you learn as much here from other people's miss other people's missteps and failures as you do from successes. Absolutely. The community of YC is really strong where I I remember reaching out to another founder right when we got in, who uh he's the CEO of Shogun, and it's another company within the Shopify space. And he was incredibly generous. His name's Finbar. And Finbar, despite having not been introduced to me or meeting me before, he gave me an hour of his time just to pick his brain and share his experiences and his wins and his failures with building inside the Shopify ecosystem and lessons along the way. And stuff like that's been extremely valuable. Fantastic stuff. So let's make a jump and talk about where we are today. Uh, you're about four years in give or take. Uh, I would think the growth uh, has been a pretty good trajectory. And you're now really actively out there enabling brands to leverage this old but new platform to connect with their target audiences. Talk about the evolution and then let's hone in on your work with brands. Sure. So the, the growth story has been very exciting. Uh, you know, Postscript has grown revenue from nothing to to a substantial eight figure business in the last in the last four years. We're currently about 190 people spread out across North America, uh, the U.S. and Canada. We've been remote from the start, and so that that's really our DNA is is to not have a central office. And we work with all kinds of brands, um, mostly D 2 C brands, but folks like Brooklinen and and you know tower records and and native deodorant right folks like that um and so what's been interesting about the space and its evolution is that when we came in no no brands were doing text marketing very 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 few maybe people were just starting to think about it and that's because it's heavily regulated and that's because they were afraid of annoying their customers people th that was the main fear and in the last four years, that has completely changed where like the fear of annoying customers or doing something that is going to intrude on them. I rarely hear that in conversations with brands or sale process processes anymore. Uh, people are still trying to be thoughtful about not annoying, but they know that the revenue opportunity and the, and the brand building opportunity is too great to ignore the channel anymore. The other thing that's happened is that the standards for excellence in the space have changed a lot. So when we first came in, marketers didn't really have an understanding of what good looked like on text messaging because it was just a new channel. And so what they did is they looked at their email marketing best practices and they applied those. 
right? They said, okay, these are kind of similar. What's worked on email? Let's do that with text messaging. And that has gone on for a couple of years. And that drives reasonable performance, but it leaves huge opportunity on the table for a better brand experience and also maximizing the revenue opportunity because customer expectations are very different. Customers and consumers expect a targeted two-way interaction via text message because that's how we all talk to each other. They don't expect the like one-way, one-to-many, untargeted email marketing approach that's the norm of like, here's 10% off, here's 20% off, here's a new product. So the first wave was brands and marketers getting comfortable with text messaging. The second wave, which is really just starting, is them deciding to get really, really good at it and them thinking about how to text more like people, how to have targeted two-way experiences, how to bring aspects of e-commerce into the messaging thread. And that's really just starting. And talk about brands willingness, if you will, to embrace the channel and where do the agencies fit in? Are they helpful, not helpful, uh, frenemies, enemies, or neither? The sentiment that I see from, from brand conversations is a huge spectrum. And I think that's because we're still pretty early on this channel. So sometimes you'll meet an executive or even just a, you know, a marketing director uh, who totally understands they want to provide personalized experiences via text message. They think of interesting use cases and they're like aligned with the future vision. Other times people can't wrap their heads around it. They're uncomfortable with the, the nature of sending a text or they just want to do the most lean back basic form of marketing, right? They want to do what they do on email and, and, you know, Instagram and Facebook ads. They want to just show discounts. That's a big spectrum on the agency side of things. It's also a mix. There are some agencies out there who are starting to operationalize SMS as a, as a managed service, as an offering, and they're really good at it. Most aren't that today. They aren't enemies or, or frenemies, but most agencies haven't figured out how to bill for SMS and haven't figured out what good strategy looks like yet. Just because, you know, email marketing, which is our closest cousin, email marketing has been around for like 25 years. There's so much expertise built up. There isn't 100,000 SMS marketing professionals across the country. That just like doesn't exist yet. And so with this dearth of talent, Mo there's a few agencies who are really good at it and innovative and leaned in most essentially treated as an afterthought today where they probably have a robust email business or robust media buying business, but their brands will ask them for SMS services and they'll like throw it in and then not pay much attention to it. And then the customer's not happy with the results because they don't, the agencies don't see it as a way to make much money. So that hasn't matured yet. The agency side of things, the brand side's moving much faster. So if we're having this conversation again in a year or two, Alex, where do you think the genre will be as a channel? Will it become mainstream, if you will? I mean, where is this thing going? It is going to become mainstream. There's a couple of reasons for it. One is that text messaging is way more regulated than email marketing. And that's actually a good thing the standard of, of compliance required and the amount of financial risk brands take by breaking those standards is very, very high. And so what that means is that 
if brands are using, you know, a, a platform like ours or like others that like follows all the rules, they're not going to be sending texts to people who don't want to receive those texts. There's like huge financial risk of doing that. And so with that, the sort of sustained returns we're seeing in the channel where brands come in and they spend with SMS and they see enormous ROI because consumers check every single text message they receive and because they read every single text. So the ROI in the, in the channel right now is very high, but subscriber lists and marketing assets are very small because it's just getting started. So here's the best example I have. One of our customers, uh, the, they're, a, they're a nine figure brand, uh, mid nine figures, they um, they make like personal hygiene products. And over last Black Friday and Cyber Monday, that those two weeks, their SMS program generated more revenue than their email program, but their SMS list is one-tenth the size of their email asset just because they haven't been doing it as long, it's new, et cetera. If that's happening with lists one-tenth the size, if I think two years, four years, 10 years out, as brands start to build more and more of these opt-in phone number assets, they're going to become extremely valuable, so valuable that brands won't be able to ignore it. That's a great story. And you also are sort of have built-in protections, if you will, around a lot of the privacy concerns that other digital channels have. That's got to be a big asset for you. It is. It's a big asset for us and it's a big asset for our customers. So no one owns SMS. SMS is an open protocol, right? Uh, we rely on T-Mobile and Verizon to deliver the text message to whoever has the phone, but no one owns it. It's like email. No one owns email. And so because of that, the people who own their customers' data are our customers, right? Brands. If a brand has a gigantic list of opted in phone numbers, that's theirs. They can access them whenever they want. They aren't, you know, reliant on potentially Facebook is going to change some rules or Apple is going to change some some cookie rules, which is going to heavily impact targeting. That just doesn't really exist. It's more like dumb pipes. And so because of that and because of the very high standard of opt-in that protects consumer privacy and is just a, a legal requirement in the U.S., th things are much safer. Fantastic. So just to wrap uh as a founder, entrepreneur, you partners all still together running the business, growing a business from give or take $800 a month to, uh, a, a, you know, eight figures. That's a, that's a healthy chunk of change. Uh, talk about what keeps you up at night. You know, someone on my team just asked me this question. Uh, this has changed over time, right? In the early days, something that I personally used to deal with was fear of competition. I've kind of gotten past that now. I've learned that like, there's a lot of opportunity. You control what you can control. Competitors are going to be out there trying stuff and we're going to like put our heads down and do our best. And if we do that, then good things will happen. But for a long time, it was competition. Now it's all internal. It's not concerns about SMS going away. It's not concerns about a competitive threat. Now it's is PostScript operating at as high a level as it can. I'm constantly, we call it operational excellence. I'm constantly thinking about that. And even if we're working hard, there's like always ways for us to be collaborating better, communicating better, positioning better, building better product, innovating more, selling to up to our potential. And that's the thing that I like most think about as a concern right now is I just, I want all of PostScript to be great and to be performing at a very high level. And there's always room to grow. Great, great story. Well, Alex, this was great. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to talk to you. Hope we didn't torture you too badly. 
and uh, we'll continue to stay in touch. It's a great, great story. And uh, let's get you on stage at Advertising Week. I think you'd be terrific. Would love to be there. I so appreciate the time and the questions, Matt. It's been a pleasure. As a marketer, you know it's crucial to spend your budget wisely. Mountain's self-serve connected TV marketing software helps you do that with data-backed insights that take the guesswork out of measuring your ad's impact. With Mountain, you can track your connected TV ad performance in real time and see how it compares to your other channels with leading web analytics integrations. You can even see who's visiting your website or making a purchase after watching an ad, regardless of what household device they use. Visit Mountain.com to learn more.